Hi, welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the U.S. president has COVID-19. How serious is his condition? COVID-19 is the second SARS-related coronavirus we have experienced. Did we learn anything from SARS? And the way you receive emergency COVID financing is changing. We've got all the details. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. It has been 30 weeks since everyone was sent home due to COVID-19. In some ways, it feels like a full circle, except now even presidents mask up. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! It is 12.09. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine. Back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. I think that's about the fourth or fifth intro that uh, we did for Kurt uh, yesterday, simply because, uh, you know, Kurt, we got to tone that down. It's way too over the top. Uh, anyway, uh, it is what it is. Uh, week number 30 of the Scott Thompson Home Show. And, of course, Will Erskine back at the station, keeping us on the air. Feel free to jump into the uh, fiasco. Love to hear from you. Send us a note via the website, Thompson at 900CHML.com. Facebook and Twitter as well you'll find the commentary of the po- uh, the podcast edition of the commentary there all right let's go south of the border that's where the big story is of course uh president donald trump testing positive uh for covid19 here's what the president had to say before uh he took a little joy ride to wave at uh, some of his fans we're getting great reports from the doctors this is an incredible hospital walter reed the work they do is just absolutely amazing and i want to thank them all the nurses, the doctors, everybody here. I've also gotten to meet some of the soldiers and the first responders and what a group. I also think we're gonna pay a little surprise to some of the great patriots that we have out on the street. And they've been out there for a long time and they've got Trump flags and they love our country. So I'm not telling anybody but you, but I'm about to make a little surprise visit. And then with that, uh, Trump and his entourage did a little uh, drive-by and waved at uh, his followers. Uh, Some not too happy about that, considering he uh, is contagious. Uh, Let's bring in Jackson Proskow, Washington Bureau Chief with Global News. He is with us now. Jackson, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. So, Jackson, what is the latest as far as the president's condition? What can you tell us? You know, we're waiting for an update today on the president's current status. Uh, Some of the news we got yesterday was actually quite alarming in the eyes of independent medical experts. Uh, The fact that he's now on a a third uh, drug here, dexamethasone, which is a steroid that is typically only given to COVID patients who have a more moderate to severe form of the virus. And that's on top of two experimental treatments. Uh, You know, you've got a lot of independent experts looking at this and saying, holy smokes, they are throwing the kitchen sink at him. And it's not clear if that's because of the severity of the virus that he has or if it's simply as a, an absolute precaution, given the fact that he is the president of the United States and in a high-risk category, given his age and overall health. Considering all of that, Jackson, what are, what are the chances of him actually getting out today, which are also rumors that are floating around? 
Yeah, well, it's not so much a rumor as a declarative made by the medical team yesterday that they that they said that they would be looking at discharging him as early as today. Uh, I think what you hear from outside doctors is that it's not that cut and dry. Uh, one of the drugs, for example, that Trump is on right now, remdesivir, which is one of those experimental treatments, typically is administered with a five-day course in a hospital setting because of the potential for side effects. Now, the White House does have a, a hefty medical unit inside the building, but the point is that if uh, the president's condition suddenly were to take a turn for the worst, he would end up right back at Walter Reed. So uh, the idea of leaving is uh, questionable, it seems, at this point. But, you know, we'll probably know by the end of the day today, uh, there, there's a lot of reporting that suggests the president is certainly anxious to get out of the hospital. Uh, and what about the ride that he took yesterday with Secret Service around to, uh, you know, getting in the uh, SUVs and driving around to, to wave at the fans? Uh, does that reflect that he is in better shape than uh, what we think? You know, it's it's hard to tell, right? I mean, we haven't heard him speak uh, at for an extended period. Uh, we haven't really seen him other than in these very controlled settings. Um, I think what that ride really says is that the White House continues to neglect sort of best practices around this virus, which is that if you have known exposure to somebody, you should quarantine. And if you are positive, as the president is, you should isolate. And instead, he crammed himself into an SUV that has a um, uh, hermetically sealed oxygen system because it's meant to guard against chemical attack uh, and knowingly exposed two Secret Service agents to the virus that he is carrying. And those two agents, agents were wearing PPE. They had on goggles and masks and gowns. But the point is, it's perhaps an unnecessary risk for him to simply drive around to be able to wave at his supporters and at the cameras. How do, uh, you know, we did see, uh, I guess, some indication of what I'm about to ask you earlier on when he was saying that uh, he's now lived COVID-19, you know, he's experienced it rather than reading the books. But how is he going to sell COVID-19 now after denying it or downplaying it for so long now that he has fallen ill to it? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, on one hand, he may try and play up that, hey, look, I got this. I'm 74. I recovered. No big deal. Uh, But that doesn't, you know, jive with the reality that he gets better medical treatment than probably any other person on the planet. If, uh, you know, one of those Secret Service agents, for example, were to develop the virus and have uh, severe illness as a result, it's highly unlikely that they would be airlifted to Walter Reed, tended to by a team of specialized doctors. Uh, that, that 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 person would be given emergency use, auth- use authorization of two experimental treatments. I mean, that is not a reality that everyday Americans can expect to see. In fact, many, many people do not even have health insurance in this country. So I think that's going to be a tough sell. Uh, I think the second thing is that, uh, you know, he said yesterday that he learned about coronavirus. He's learned a whole bunch. And then he went and hopped in that SUV with those two Secret Service officers mm-hmm. defying sort of best practices. So how is all this playing with the American public, especially considering what we've just talked about? Does does this again come back to what team you're on? You're either this way or that way, no matter what. I mean, does does this change anything? To an extent, uh, I do think that there are an element of Trump's own supporters, though, who realize that, A, maybe this is more serious than he and those around him have made it out to be, given the fact that the the president ended up uh, in hospital within 24 hours of announcing his diagnosis. And uh, I think there is generally a sense that maybe the president has been playing this wrong with his cavalier attitude. Uh, think about it. Had he not gotten sick, he would have been in Wisconsin this past weekend holding two rallies in a state that has some of the highest COVID numbers in the entire country. They're having a massive, massive outbreak right now. And the president was going to press ahead with rallies there as though it's no big deal. Could the joyride backfire? 
him going out and, uh, and you know, especially he's still sick, he's contagious, and he's going out and about. Yeah, I mean, potentially. Look, uh, the president claims that he is on the side of police. He is on the side of law and order. And here he is knowingly exposing law enforcement agents who serve him to a potentially deadly virus. What about going around? He said he was going around and meeting and greeting uh, people at the hospital and such, uh, emergency workers and, and soldiers and such. Uh, is he allowed to, to, you know, considering he's, he's in a quarantine status, is he seeing other people in the hospital? Yeah, we don't actually know. Uh, we know that his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, was reportedly in a conference room with him yesterday wearing an N95 mask. Uh, we don't actually know how much contact Trump is having with others, though, outside of his medical team. That's a, a big question right now. And any questions about side effects of the medication that he's on? I understand a lot of this is, is experimental. Yeah, uh, you know, some of the medications include, include risks like heart palpitations. The steroid includes risk of things like psychosis and mania for uh, long-term doses of it. So those are all real risks, and that probably is why uh, his medical team would be urging him to stay in the hospital setting as long as possible, if it's possible to. Now we are hearing more and more White House staff testing positive. Uh, Press Secretary, I just understand, has announced that uh, she has tested positive. What about uh, backlash and and those that that work there uh, beyond the president? So this is the thing. This is the way this White House has treated this virus. If you or I were to come in contact with somebody who is a confirmed case, and that would be considered known exposure, we would be told to self-isolate for 14 days, right? Quarantine, stay away on the chance that you develop symptoms. But the way the White House has been treating this is to say uh, people like Kaylee McEnany, who had known contact with Hope Hicks, who tested positive last week, she has kept working until now she has tested positive. And we know that there is an infectious stays with this virus where you can be spreading it before you've actually tested positive. So it sort of shows you that in the eyes of many medical experts, these folks are playing with fire. And in fact, there's a question right now as to whether Vice President Mike Pence should even be going ahead with the vice presidential debate uh, later on this week with Kamala Harris, given his own potential exposure to everybody at the White House here. He's proceeding uh, as planned, though, as though, um, you know, he's, he's testing clean at this point. Now, in fairness, Joe Biden uh, we has sort of a, a, an on-the-bubble situation here where he was around the president during the debate on Tuesday. He is continuing to campaign, although he also continues to test negative. Uh, but Biden is doing so on the assumption that Trump had a negative test heading into the debate last Tuesday, because that's essentially what they've been told. Uh, last question, Jackson. What about the first lady? She also has tested positive. What do we know about her condition? Yeah, uh, she is younger, reportedly doing better and just self-isolating inside the White House, not apparently experiencing anything beyond mild symptoms right now. Jackson Proskow has been with us, Washington Bureau Chief Global News. Make sure you're watching tonight at 530 and 6 for more on this on Global News. Jackson, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Let's uh, bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. We don't have much time here. I want to get his take on uh, what has transpired over the weekend with, of course, uh, the President of the United States con- uh, contracting con- uh, the COVID-19 virus. Elliot, uh, thanks for taking the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. So your thoughts, uh, and, and uh, now that he has this, he's been out, we know what he's been doing over the weekend. How do you think he's going to sell this to the American people, the way he has denied it in the past and now all of a sudden has come down with it? Uh, and I guess we saw a glimpse of this earlier when he said, you know, I've lived this now, so I know what it's all about. Uh, your thoughts? 
Well, there's many, many thoughts. But the, off the top, of course, as we said uh, earlier, you've got to wish him well. He's the president of the U.S. and on a human level uh, and his wife. I mean, you have to just say, first mm-hmm. and off the top, good luck and, and, and good luck on that. So what does it all mean? Uh, the uh, Boy, where do you start on this? I think cognitive impairment is where I would start. In terms of whether he's learned something, None of the evidence so far suggests that he has. That is, the campaign itself is continuing uh, as it has before. The people who have been out in the street honking and waving for him, those were encouraged by uh, the campaign, you know, show your support, go out and stand and shoulder to shoulder, you know. So they, they apparently are proceeding as before. They plan to, as they say, flood the zone. They're, they're sending the vice president out on the campaign trail uh, at a time when the president is in the hospital. So that would suggest maybe they haven't learned a great deal. Uh, they, they do plan to maintain the... And also, the Biden campaign has said, well, we're pulling our negative ads, but the Trump ads are, remain, I've, I've seen several of them, very uh, pointed. I think the word nasty comes to mind. So I don't see any change in behavior there. Uh, my concern, Scott, is cognitive impairment. I mean, many concerns. You, you worry about his health, but President of the United States is now on medicines which are known to cause uh, impairment of the cognitive functions, and the mm. term paranoia comes. Well, he doesn't need any more paranoia. As a, but here we have the President of the U.S., who is not removable uh, very easily from office, who is taking medicines which might impair how he thinks, and there's something called long haulers, people who have had this disease but have uh, recovered from it, they don't really fully recover, not, not physically, but also something called brain fog. So I'm concerned that the President of the United States, who after all does have, among other things, the nuclear button, 4,000 warheads at his disposal, uh, and is heading to a camp, you know, an election 28, 29 days from today, where he's behind in the polls. So there's a lot to be, uh, to be talking about here. You know, Elliot, it seems every time we chat, I ask you the same questions, but they always have different answers because something wacky has happened. But again, uh, you know, we've seen two sides of this. Uh, either you're on that side or this side. Nothing right. seems to phase, to phase either in changing their minds. How will Americans view this now that he has it? The first polls are coming out right now. The question of a, a sympathy bump was raised immediately rally around the president in a time of need, and the initial polling shows that's not happening. You could posit, though, a a longer term, and you can only posit, you can only think about it, suggested that he's used a lot of religious imagery right from the start. You know, he said, I am the chosen one. If he recovers from this, I think there's going to be probably a lot of talk about resurrection. Uh, This isn't my area of specialization, but (laughs) political science uh, suggests that he may have some, if he recovers from this, and the, the um, we talked about this right after the debate, that uh, Fox News is saying, well, not Fox News, but the commentary site, Hannity, said he's a, he's a gladiator warrior, you know, fighting for you. And if he comes through this, that will become a central part of, uh, you'd better reelect him, he'll be there for you. What uh, he obviously wants to get out today, still waiting to see if that's going to happen. Uh, what about moving forward? Where do you see this in the next 24, 48 hours? Because that those the next two days are supposed to be crucial here. Yes. Well, we talked about uh, 
you know, what if. And right now we have just the scantest of information, and we should comment on that. All presidents have really lied, basically, about their health. It's not specific to this president that there's confusion and uh, perhaps misleading statements. But we do have a situation where this president uh, has a track record of, uh, well, let's say, deconstruction of trust on all, all levels. If he comes out and then has to go back in, well, then it's, you know, that's a black mark. Oh, my mm-hmm. goodness, he's sick again. This is a very dicey, in terms of the campaign itself, in terms of the timing. But what about if it is more serious? What if there's, for example, I'm, you know, I'm looking at the 25th Amendment again. There is a way to deal with a president who's incapacitated. If he goes in and, and gets on one of those uh, apparatus that helps you breathe, then he is clearly not in charge of the country. Will he remove himself, or will the cabinet have to say, sir, you do not have the ability to, to govern. And that means Vice President Pence would have to lead a cabinet revolt to say that if he's on a respirator of some kind, he can't govern. So we're into some very dicey areas. Wow. Uh, yeah, this could go anyway still. Uh, Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot is always fascinating. Next time we're going to have more time, I promise. Uh, busy okay. day today. But you be well. Uh, and you and everybody listening. Breaking news. Uh, Donald Trump is leaving the hospital. Uh, Donald Trump has just tweeted, I will be leaving the great Walter Reed Medical Center today at 6.30 p.m. Uh, feeling really good. Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. We have developed, under the Trump administration, some really great drugs and knowledge. I feel better than I did 20 years ago. <laughs> there you go. So uh, it looks like, um, although he would still be contagious, wouldn't he? Because he isn't, you know, he's not over it yet. Um, he's feeling better, so he's, uh, he's going home which is great news. I mean, you know, you don't want to wish this on your worst enemy. Um, so it's great to see that uh, that he is feeling better. Um, however, again, it's uh, just like when he's driving around in the car. Uh, he, he's, he's still contagious and uh, still requires, um, you would think, some sort of medical attention after being through what he's been through. Um, but again, you, you can imagine, uh, you know, this was... The president did not want to be seen uh, wearing a mask, even joked that reporters were trying to get a picture of him in a mask. And uh, yet we got him uh, waving next to the her- or inside the hermetically sealed uh, SUV, uh, wearing a mask and, um, and and following protocol. So uh, although the tweet says that, uh, sorry. Uh, so, you know, despite, uh, despite following the protocol now, I'm not sure how he is going to sell, uh, to the American people, uh, the fact that he got a disease that, uh, he, he pretty much downplayed for uh, a long period of time. So, uh, fascinating to watch this, uh, ongoing story, but, uh, the latest information is Trump is to be discharged from the hospital at 6.30 tonight from, uh, Walter Reed, uh, Medical Center and the president apparently doing quite well. Uh, our Washington correspondent with Global News, Reggie Giacchini, had this to say. This is exactly what uh, physicians were.
were supposed to come out and talk about in the three o'clock hour was that President Trump, in their opinion, is doing better and would be able to leave. But the president has decided to come out and tweet this on his own, but in a in an almost cavalier way by saying, don't let this coronavirus uh, dominate your life to the families of 210,000 Americans who have died. But also don't let this control your life to a man who just spent three days in hospital with some of the world's best doctors treating him. This, this is a another messaging crisis for this president. All right, let's move on. The NFL season is underway, but more uh, some players have tested positive. Uh, what happens moving forward? How does the uh, NFL deal with this? And how do you keep this all together when you've got large numbers of, uh, of teams that are testing positive? Let's bring in Sean Fitzgerald, managing editor, feature writer with The Athletic and with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. And just to tie a bow on this, Donald Trump did claim credit for getting football back onto the field. So here we are. <laughs> there you go. And it sounds like it. he's going to be in the stand soon by the looks of things. Yeah. Uh, so where is all of this now? Uh, give us a bit of an update on the increasing numbers we're seeing on some teams and, and how the NFL is going to manage this. Yeah, I mean, there's some reason to believe the NFL might be on fire um, just because the, the, the numbers are expanding, that um, it's not in a bubble, that players aren't you know unlike baseball where they're sort of hermetically sealed on the road so often in hotels and in ballparks that you know football players have a lot of free time and there's frankly just a lot more of them and that this might well be only the very beginning of of struggles that we're going to see for however long the football season lasts we've certainly seen uh, many organizations leagues try to get up and running and various sports get back to it did the nfl do enough to protect their players against this I'm not sure exactly what the NFL's done. Um, honestly, that you know, yeah. baseball players are in their hotels. They're there's they're in the stadiums. There's sort of um, policy enforcement. Um, obviously, we know a bit more about the NHL and and what it had done in creating the bubbles, both in Toronto and Edmonton. And you know, the NBA is near the end of its time in the bubble in Florida. And you know, the NHL went all the way through without a single positive test in the NBA. And like the Major League Soccer and WNBA. Um, had success in the bubble. The NFL isn't really like any of that. And, you know, what you have now is you have Cam Newton, who's the quarterback of the New England Patriots, you know, one of the cornerstone franchises in the league, and he's tested positive. You have, you know, um, you have a practice roster quarterback with Kansas City, the defending Super Bowl champions, who's tested positive and who also happens to, you know, share quarterback meeting room with Patrick Mahomes, one of the game's biggest stars. Um, you've had games that are postponed. You've had games that have been pushed back already. The NFL is a pretty condensed season to begin with. So, you know, what happens if, you know, and it seems almost assured that they will, um, these flare-ups continue to happen. How would the NFL have justified what the other leagues were doing, what other sports were doing? Uh, justified the bubble i'm not sure how it would have been possible just because of the sheer volume and then also sort of the so is the is so that's a valid point sean so is this league just too big to to have the same sort of protocol that we've seen in other sports well i mean you'd have you know certainly some logistical questions of you know hotel rooms that you know i think the nhl teams were traveling you know the the official estimate I'd seen was somewhere between, you know, 50 players or 50 people per team. So a traveling party of 50, well, you know, NFL roster sizes alone outside of just practice players exceed 50. Um, you know, so you do have the capacity, but, you know, is it too big? Like, you know, the NFL is also the, the richest 
biggest sports monolith on this continent. So in terms of, you know, raw capital, yeah, it has access to plenty of capital to enforce, you know, whatever bubble it wanted to. It just, it just chose not to. So where do you see this going, Sean? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, certainly you take a look at college football and then these, these are, you know, folks, these are kids who are playing essentially for free in a league that also generates billions of dollars. And you've already seen outbreaks in campuses across the United States. You know, the University of Notre Dame that has its own television deal with NBC, by the way, had to push one of its games back last week because of an outbreak within the team. Um, I think really that this is potentially only the beginning that, you know, NFL players aren't, you know, traveling all week that they play once a week and if they're at home they play sunday you know they have lots of meetings um but they have lots of time to be with family to you know be with those touch points that we're sort of learning about you know the outside your social circles you know if they go to the local grocery store to pick something up like they're they're not hermetically sealed like the nba and the nhl players were that you know there's a lot more risk and because there's a lot more players there's always going to be a lot more risk Sean Fitzgerald has been with us, managing editor, feature writer with The Athletic. NFL season underway. However, uh, we are starting to see uh, plenty of outbreak. Going to be fascinating to see how the league manages this. Sean, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. You as well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, we have been through this before in a much lesser extent, and that was SARS several years ago. Certainly Ontario uh, went through that. And there's a new report entitled A Time of Fear, How Canada Failed Our Healthcare Workers and Mismanaged COVID-19. And what we're seeing today, uh, many are questioning whether we did learn anything from SARS. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Anna Banerjee is with us. Uh, post-MD Education Faculty of uh, Medicine, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, no, I'm doing fine. And you? Uh, I'm doing well, thank you. You know, what the heck? Week 30, we're all in it. Here we go. Roll up the sleeves. Yeah. Keep keep your head down and keep going, I guess. Yeah. So, Doctor, uh, obviously, I know you have no uh, relation to this case whatsoever, but just as a professional, I have to ask your opinion of what your thoughts are with uh, the President of the United States. Uh, you know, the, the honest truth is I don't know. I don't know yeah. what's happening with him. I find it very, every, well, everything about the situation is bizarre. It sounds like he had symptoms. On the Wednesday night, he went to the fundraiser on Thursday, exposed a bunch of people, and then when he was symptomatic with coronavirus, then ended up in the hospital. And here he is parading around in a car, but, you know, the end, he's on these medications that you usually restrict to people who are severely ill in ICU, like he'll be remdesivir, as well as uh, he had some antibody from other people who have had coronavirus. Now, I'm not sure if this was given to him because he said he wanted it and he was president or if it was given to him because he's actually that sick. Normally, if you know that people are on these medications, then they're quite sick. So, you know, I have no idea what's going on. Mm. And hopefully we'll find out more coming up a little later on uh, this afternoon uh, with a press conference. All right, doctor. uh, Did we learn anything from SARS? How do we compare these two uh, pandemics, these two outbreaks. I guess you can't cause the first one a pandemic, but the, these uh, two outbreaks, and, and should we have learned more from SARS? So I actually came to Toronto because of SARS. I was doing my master's of public health at Harvard, and I would hear rumors of things happening in Toronto, and 
Actually, it was Bonnie Henry that asked me if I could come up to Toronto to help with SARS. And so I came up there as a consultant for SARS and then became an associate medical officer of health at Toronto Public Health dealing with SARS. And so I have a, a, a fair bit of knowledge there. And I haven't read this new report on how it's saying that we failed, but I think that, you know, there are some things we could have done better, but SARS is very different than the new SARS, the new coronavirus. Um, so, you know, as a result of SARS, we, they created the Public Health Agency of Canada. And, you know, infection control was um, implemented in all hospitals. Most new hospitals are single room. They have better ventilation. They have, uh, you know, more isolation rooms. So there have been a lot of changes. You know, but SARS was not so infectious. SARS uh, was limited to uh, people surrounding the index case and also to healthcare providers. Well, coronavirus, I mean, and, and so they, they recommended stockpiling some PPE, uh, et cetera. But you never know when the next big pandemic is going to happen. You know, if you stockpile a million and 95, you know, your chances are, you know, you're probably going to end up throwing them out before they expire, mm-hmm. you know, because you don't know. And now it happened. You know, one of the big problems was that there wasn't enough PPE and N95s and surgical masks and gowns and hand sanitizer, but that was a situation in the whole world. The whole world experienced this pandemic, and there was suddenly a shortage of uh, supplies. Now, even if we had some supplies stockpiled, how quickly would we have run out considering so many people got got the um, coronavirus? I mean, I think that it's easy to say that we failed, and I think that there are some things we could have done better. Uh, I, but I think in some ways we, we did learn a lot from SARS, and, and we have done, I think, better than, you know, considering the situation. Like, for example, like I said, we have the public health agency. We've had consistent messaging. We've had the chief public health officer come out on a regular basis, give us an update. At the beginning, there was consistent messaging. They told us, to stay at home. We stayed at home. Then when things switched and they said told us then they told us we use masks, we all use masks. So we all went according to that. Now there's a lot of uh, discrepancies in consistent messaging. The 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 government Canadian government may say something, Ford may say something else, and the provincial guidelines may be saying something else. And now Toronto Public Health, for example, is saying something different than what the province is saying. So a lot of people are becoming confused now. But for the fact that for six months we had consistent messaging, I mean, that's that's pretty remarkable. I mean, but I, but I think that there is a lot to learn, and I hope we learned it during this epidemic. For example, the long-term care facilities, the, the terrible deaths that we had back in the spring. You know, if we've learned anything, we shouldn't see, you know, such mass casualties in the future. And also... If we learned anything, we know that Indigenous people are at risk, especially in remote communities from H1N1. So we hope that things are are better in place so that when the outbreaks occur, if the outbreaks occur in the Indigenous communities, that we're more ready to, to manage them. It appears where this seems to be coming off the rails is rapid testing. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, for uh, for five months, six months, we were sort of heading in one direction, and then 
uh, it became obvious that more people wanted testing, but there doesn't seem to be able to do that very quickly. So uh, how much of this comes back to the inability to rapid test? And is that something we should have learned from SARS? Um, yes, I think the, the rapid testing is very important, especially for remote isolated communities that have to wait like sometimes two weeks for the results. But I think it's also the volume. We've got so many people now that are, you know, they said, get tested, everyone, everyone getting tested. They, you know, they were saying, uh, you know, I'm really upset. We, we don't have enough people tested. Now we've got like 40,000 people being tested. And, and you have exceeded the capacity of the labs to do the test. Now, it depends. So it depends on the kind of testing. Some rapid tests use the genetic, use a PCR, so the genetic material. And so there, it's like a little toaster. They put the specimens in. They can do a bunch at the same time. And you can take these portable things and put them in, in, in labs outside of hospitals or, you know, outside of the typical uh, lab. So that's one thing. Now, we're coming out with this rapid testing, which is like a pregnancy test. It's called uh, where it actually looks for the viral particles. Uh, and if the viral particles are there, then you get a probably a line that that's positive uh, if it's there. The problem with these tests, I think, I think that these tests are very important. Uh, the the one of the problems is that you have a higher rate of false negatives than in the PCR test. So so you may have people with symptoms of, of coronavirus, but their test is negative. Which again, it's the same thing with the PCR test. If you have symptoms, you need to stay at home, and you. But a positive test with symptoms would be helpful, and and uh, you know. But a positive test may also be a false positive. Like I think it's a two percent false positive rate, which doesn't worry me as much as a false negative rate. But that being said, there's a whole bunch of people who get tested on a regular basis. For for example, for for uh, in the film industry or certain offices, and instead of having them line up to go, you know, get a PCR test and these massive lineups, if you can do some of these tests, especially low-risk people, no symptoms, then it doesn't uh, bog down the the laboratories and the public health system. So I think there is a place for this, um, especially in communities where they can't easily get the results back in a, in a timely fashion. So, Dr. Banerjee, what is your evaluation of where we are as we hit this second wave? Uh, Some people uh, are becoming anxious, some hysterical. Is this premature? Your evaluation of where we are. So, um, I think that the school situation uh, probably could have been better organized. And, uh, you know, but what we're seeing, what I'm seeing is that, you know, kids are getting sick. A lot of kids are getting viral illnesses and they come home families are getting sick. A lot of the people that I'm seeing aren't getting that sick, you know, so far. We, we have, we're ramping up and there's a lot of young people getting it, but but we're not seeing the, the really high mortality that we were seeing back in the spring. So, so I think that, you know, it's not making it right now to those vulnerable people. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I think since We've started ramping up again, and, and COVID rates are starting to go high, and people are recognizing that their actions and behavior really controls whether whether this goes up or whether we can slow this down. I think people in general are taking a step back and are, are staying at home, more or less. You know, some people have to work. Essential workers have to work. 
But I think that with, you know, people limiting their contacts, that is, that will have an impact. I don't know how long this will last. I think we can get the influenza vaccine as soon as possible. That will also help. But I think that we see a direct correlation between people's behavior and uh, and the, the ramping up or down of coronavirus. And I'm hopeful, you know, once we get through this winter, which may be a long winter, that, that you know, when we get to the other side, that that's going to be it. We're not going to see multiple waves because this is such an infectious virus that I think by then it probably would have gone through much of the population. Either you're going to get sick or you're not. And, uh, you know, you may have, uh, at that point, probably some people have some immunity. So I expect it to die down in the spring or even Doctor, sooner. Dr. An- uh, Dr. Anna Banerjee has been with us, a Faculty of Medicine, University of Toronto. Anna, always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Stay well. You too. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We just finished uh, Premier Doug Ford's uh, daily news conference. You know, it's getting uh, monotonous to listen to these, not because of what government is saying, but just because of the, uh, oh, delivery must be coming. You know, everybody just keeps asking the same stupid questions to which there's no answers to. Like, it's amazing. You know, the government should be doing this. The government should be doing this. They should be shutting down this. They should be shutting down that. They should be... All right, talk right off. <laughs> uh, you know, like, we should be... Like, like, you know, we can't shut everything down. And not only that, we don't need to shut everything down. 615 new cases in Ontario, no deaths. That's the key. No deaths. Let's go back. Let's look at the notes. Let's go back to pick a thing. Let's pick uh, May 21st, Thursday, May 21st, 413 new cases, not 615, 413, 31 dead, right? That's back in uh, May 11th, Uh, 308 new cases, 35 dead, Uh, 178 new cases in June. 17 dead. Uh, August, let's go up to July, 195 new cases, only three dead. So that's the big difference. We have figured this out. So it amazes me how people come on and just scream at the schools, scream at the, at the premier, scream at the prime. You know, like, you, want, you know what the problem is here? We don't have any rapid testing. The world does not have rapid testing, just like the world did not have PPE when this all started. So you can sit and jump around with your hair on fire, you know, uh, uh, as much as you want. But hell, I'd hate to go to war with you. Because you know what? At the end of the day, you got to use that thing between your ears. Not everybody's situation is the same. So don't look for blanket measures from a government to shut down a whole industry or shut down a whole area because there's certain hotspots in the province. And, you know, people are constantly asking officials questions to which there are no answers. And then they get, oh, when they, you know, like what, who wipes your rear end every day? It's your job to help government keep you safe. You just can't stand there in the middle of a lightning storm and go, someone help me. Get the hell out of the rain.
You know, we are so spoiled. We are such a privileged generation. We expect government to do everything for us, even when no one knows what to do because it's brand new. Like, my goodness, it is unbelievable the political uh, partisanship that's going on here as each team tries to defend their own. We're all in this together. Don't expect a leader of a government to save your life. Use what's between your ears. Who has not got the message? We need to self-distance. We need to wear a mask. Come on. Even the president gets it now. All right. Want to move on? Let's bring in uh, Don Fox. Talk about money. Uh, Canadians who were forced to miss work due to COVID-19 will be able to access new benefits. Talk more about all of this. Don Fox is with a senior executive financial consultant, IG Private Wealth Management, with us now. Don, how are you? Doing great, Scott. How about yourself? I'm okay now. A little I worked up right here. Well, you know, it's like I'm listening to this press conference, and they just keep asking the same damn questions over and over again that no one hands the answers to. And then they're yelling that they don't get what they want to hear. It's bananas. Have you never been through a crisis? Guess not. <laughs> <laughs> and you're absolutely right. This is new, and they're kind of learning by doing. And the very first thing that came out was, uh, you know, people would need money. And they didn't know how long. And they came out with that uh, Canada Emergency Response Benefit. And interesting name at the time because emergency and response. That was how they named it. Like, okay, we, it's a knee-jerk reaction. We're going to give you some money right away. And we're going to give you a really quick access. And really, no, no questions asked. You could get those mm-hmm. funds. It was $500 a week. And they just expen- uh, extended the deadline. But just, uh, just out today are three new benefits. And they changed the wording. It's no longer emergency response. It's Canada recovery benefit. Hmm. Okay, so they're looking at, okay, we're trying to recover from this now. And, yes, there, you have to jump through a couple hoops now in order to get that, which I, again, listening to you there, Scott, uh, makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It, it, it basically, okay, you get it if you need it. Um, it was it's a little easier previous, but uh, you know we want to make sure the right people are getting it. Um, but they split it in three different ones: Canada Recovery Benefit, the Canada Recovery Caregiver Benefit, and the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit. And they all have their own little areas. Um, you know, there's some you know a lot of thinking that went into this. Uh, whether it's the perfect solution, again, uh, to your point, Scott, earlier. They're kind of figuring it out, and they, 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 but they've had a lot more time to work on this than they did on the, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, or otherwise known as CERB. So, yeah, it's, a, it's a, some new things. Uh, they literally, people can start applying for two of those starting today. And the ones that they can apply for right now would be the Canada Recovery Caregiver Benefit and the Sickness Benefit. So... It's alphabet soup, though. Soup, though. We got CRB, we got CRCB, and we got CRSB. <laughs> As you said, Don, obviously it's incredibly important that this money gets out the door and helps the people that need it the most. How concerned, though, on the other side of that coin is the financial community about how much this is going to cost? Or is that something that isn't even resonating yet? It is resonating. Uh, you know, going back to the CERB, they, they said there would be penalties. And there could be up to a $5,000 penalty if you fraudulently 
uh, receive CERB. And funny enough, and I'd never see, think this would happen, but up to 14 years in jail. So that's defrauding the government. So that's just a blanket. I doubt anybody would, of course, get jail time. But I guess if there's a whole ton of, if there's almost a, a scheme of trying to get all the CERB money, uh, maybe that would be enforceable by jail time. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of people out there, and there's actually a lot of honest people that realize, okay, I got the CERB and I started working. I shouldn't got, you know, four weeks. I should have only got, say, two weeks of it. Um, but they kind of give you a check for 2000 right off the get-go, regardless if you went back to work. So you're supposed to return some of those funds. And they are. We're, Can you return it by keeping the economy moving by buying a big screen? Because <laughs> that's sort of giving it back. It is in a way. You're keeping um, the economy moving. the same thing when you get audited, but you can always talk to the tax <laughs> auditor about that one. <laughs> I'm not going to give the money to, to Revenue Canada. I'm going to give it to the economy instead. That's a great idea. Look, look how much I've helped the economy. If I give it back to you guys, it won't go That's back right. to the economy. That's so, right. All you're going to do is build a road with it or something silly. So It, it, it sounds kind of like those the kids getting the student grant money in the past, yeah. right, Scott? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, will this? Are you confident this will all work itself out come tax the next tax uh, tax time? So, those that didn't or weren't supposed to get it will get it clawed back, or, or so on and so forth. Will because they've always said that, that that around tax time this will clarify itself. Are you are you are you confident that will happen? I think there is going to be the black and white ones, the ones that needed it, um, and they got it, and they, and it's a T four. So you will receive a T four on this come 2021 and you have to pay tax on that there's the ones that returned it and said you know what i don't i didn't need it i didn't qualify for it so here's your money back and they will not get that t4 and the important thing is is to make sure if you didn't qualify return that money before december 31st in fact i'd suggest doing it right away so that you don't get a t4 because let's say you sent it back and you sent it way late in december and you also got a T4 on it. So this is a double whammy. You sent back the money, but now you got to pay tax on the money you sent back. Oh, yeah. So you can only imagine, and anything to deal with the government, is particularly the numbers of people that received it, this would be a huge hassle. So my, my recommendation would be if you feel you shouldn't have received it in the first place, because, and, and maybe only a week of it, whatever the amount was, send it back, and you can go right online, and they, and they actually show you how to send it back. Um, so go on the CRA website, um, and, and basically the same way of how you collected in the first place. You know, my CRA, it will actually tell you how to send it back also. Are you expecting come next year just tax time from hell? I mean, what is that going to look like, especially with people working from home? Yeah, the ones that are working isn't going to be the issue because they didn't get it. Um, right. But yes, uh, they they will get, and there's that form. Um, you're familiar with that form, Scott, from working from home. T2200. That's the one, um, the T2200. And so there's a lot of people that never, ever used that T2200 before that now will be able to qualify for expenses that they incurred by working at home because they no longer had an office to go to. So part of your heating bill, part of your, say, your cell phone costs, uh, you know, you can, you can kind of break it down, almost like a self-employed person that has an office at home, and they say, let's say they have, you know, five rooms, and they use one room for an office, so they get to deduct kind of one-fifth of the expenses of having that office in your home. 
Don Fox has been with us, Senior Executive Financial Consultant, IG Private Wealth Management. Make sure you're listening to Don and Andy every Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, for more on all of this. Don, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Anytime, Scott. You be well also. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Something that we have not heard a lot about, but boy, when uh, it happened, we certainly did. Uh, that is the case of Honey and Barry Sherman, who were uh, murdered in their Toronto home. Uh, now the case involving their last will and testament of the billionaires is coming to court. And uh, it, it's a very interesting twist to this. And Kevin Donovan is with us, chief investigative reporter for the Toronto Star. And the headline is Barry and Honey Sherman estate case could, uh, to test Canada's open court tradition in Supreme Court of Canada hearing. And Kevin Donovan is with us now. Kevin, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am and hope you're well, well as well. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, obviously, Kevin, uh, a, a case that, that captured everyone's attention way back when. It's been a while since we've heard anything from an investigative standpoint. Before we get to y- your column here, is there anything you can tell us as far as the investigate, uh, investigation of this case uh, ongoing is? Any, any new information to report? Well, I revisited it uh, a week ago with a story uh, that I uh, showed that it took four weeks for the police to get permission to get into Barry Sherman's office, four weeks after the murder, uh, before they got uh, to access any of his records, which is just another in a series of of, of problems that I've been able to uncover in in this uh, very, you know, as you mentioned, very lengthy case. Uh, The police say, however, that it didn't affect their investigation at all, and they say that the investigation is, quote, active and ongoing. They've been saying that for almost three years now, and in about a month I'll be back in court on the the search warrants that we're trying to uh, obtain to, to get a sense of whether or not the police are actually doing anything, or if, as is possible, this has become a cold case. Police don't like to admit that they're spinning their wheels, and, and hopefully they're not. But uh, so that's the update on the investigation. The other case that you're asking about is our our Supreme Court case tomorrow, of course. And what and when what is happening tomorrow? Why is this significant? Well, six months after the uh, the, the tragic deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman, I went to a court counter at a, a court on University Avenue in Toronto and asked to do what. Uh, reporters do all the time across this, the great country. I asked to see a court file. I wanted to see if the will had been probated, meaning had uh, their wills been made public, and uh, and you know how much there was in the estate, how much tax was being paid, things like that. And I uh, was told there was a protective file uh, sealing it, and I couldn't get it. So I uh, we appealed up through a couple levels of court. We won at the Ontario Court of Appeal. Uh, and then uh, the Shermans appealed that to the Supreme Court of Canada, and that uh, final hearing will be held tomorrow at 9.30, and it'll be webcast for those who are interested in watching these things. Uh, at issue uh, is, is the actual file. I don't know what's in it, uh, but bigger issue that's been raised is the openness of courts. Uh, courts uh, of all levels are open in Canada. It's part of our democracy. It's fundamental to our democracy, I would argue, and uh, we feel that what the Shermans are doing will be uh, potentially a restriction on, on court documents. And so that's why we're taking on this fight, uh, both uh, for the micro and, and the macro. 
Uh, as you mentioned, this information usually in the public domain. Why do you think the effort made to keep this out of the public domain? Just because there's it's a wealthy family and there's lots of, of avenues here? Why, why the need for secrecy? I, I think that's part of it. Uh, I, also, I mean, uh, you know, this is the family of, of Barry Sherman, who uh, who I, through you know my work for The Star and the book I did, Billionaire Murders, have grown to really admire him. But boy, did Barry Sherman love to use the courts and he did not like to give up uh, any fight at all. I think there's part of that. The other thing that makes this, I think, of an even uh, potentially greater public interest is that the police have told me in this other search warrant case that we're doing, they have said uh, on the record that Barry Sherman's will and his estate is, and this is the word the detective used, is embedded in their investigation. So quite naturally, I want, you know, we all want to, uh, our questions on this case answered. And so that's why I want to see these files to see what, what what it means. What is the connection between the estate and the police investigation? Are you surprised that at this point, whether it's the investigation or all of this that, that you're uncovering with the will and such, are you surprised we don't know more? Or is this typical for such a high-profile family and case? I, I mean, I'm always surprised that, that uh, we have to work so hard as journalists in Canada to get information. Uh, all of the, the, the stories that, that I've done at the Star and all the information in the book has, has not come uh, easily, and I'm not complaining about that, but it's, the police are not handing out this information. Uh, over the, I've been a reporter for 35 years, and I've seen a gradual restriction on information about high-profile cases. And I think that's, you know, that's just a, uh, the way it is now. Uh, uh, police have become very corporate. There's, uh, I mean, when I first covered homicides, uh, when I was a kid reporter, you know, you'd go out and have a, have a cup of coffee with a detective and, and find out mm. what's going on. That doesn't happen now. Um, with the size of this estate, are we just to imagine it will be contested? Are we just to imagine this will not be easy? It will be complicated. Well, I mean, we're, the, the hearing's going to be tomorrow. It'll take, uh, uh, there's a time limit on Supreme Court hearings. Uh, we get an hour, the Shermans get an hour, and on both sides there are interveners that will each get 10 minutes. Um, the Ontario Attorney General is... is uh, not with us on this. The British Columbia Attorney General is, so that's interesting. And then there's other special interest groups that have have come forward. Uh, we'll get an answer either immediately tomorrow or more likely a couple of months down the line, and that will be the final uh, answer. Um, I, I don't. I think to me this is very much a case about about the law. I don't think it's a case about wealth. And as far as what the actual dollar figure that we're going to get. Readers shouldn't uh, and listeners shouldn't expect it to be too high because people who own private companies and Barry Sherman's firm, Apotex, is a private company. The his shares in Apotex don't go through the will. What uh, uh, through probate? What goes through probate are smaller numbers. uh, uh, You know, uh, any uh, property he owns, uh, stocks and bonds and things like that. So I don't think we're going to see a billion dollar answer tomorrow but we'll get Mm. some answers and and uh, it's important courts are important in this country and they should be open that's my argument uh have have you heard anything from the family on any of this have any have any family members made comment uh well i 
I have, uh, there are members of the family that I, that I speak to from time to time. Uh, I know that generally uh, they're not pleased that we're trying to unseal this, but there are parts of the family, and I'm not going to name names, parts of the family that are, are quite pleased uh, that we are keeping the case uh, uh, alive. And, uh, and certainly in our coverage, I mean, there's been some, some media have not been too kind to Barry and Honey Sherman. I think we have, and I think they were pretty, pretty good people, eccentric for sure, but they did a lot of good for this uh, city and for this country. Um, you, you mentioned earlier, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, but the estate is part of the investigation. I believe you said something to that effect. What, and that was from the police. What does that tell you? Well, yeah, so the actual word that they used was embedded. They said that, that right. the, see, I was asking the police about any connection between the estate uh, who's getting the money? Basically, that's what the state is, uh, and who's not getting the money? And they said, "Well, that's that information is embedded in all of our police investigation." And what I take from that is that there is something in the file that that there is a connection. And it and to me, since you know a will is about property or money, it's either that we will learn if we get this unsealed for sure who is getting the property and the money, and perhaps who is not getting it. Uh, would that, and I, and I have to be careful here, and I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, would that lead to a theory that there could be a suspect in the family if it is attached to inheritance? I, I mean, there's all sorts of speculations. And what I can tell you is that both for very close friends of, of Barry and Honey and for family members, there has been a lot of finger pointing over the last three years. Uh, all sorts of people have, have you know, pointed fingers uh, each way, more than I would say even in an Agatha Christie uh, case. Uh, and so I don't know. I mean, I, I, I prefer to wait to see what's in the documents uh, just to see, you know, how it relates to the police investigation i'm obviously being very careful there but uh, uh with good reason kevin donovan has been with us chief investigative reporter for the toronto star barry and honey sherman estate case to test canada's open court tradition in supreme court of canada hearing and kevin of course uh, one of the best investigative reporters uh in the country and uh another great reason why we all need to support local media kevin uh, great work uh and we'll be in touch again thanks for the time thank you so much the Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.